the business plan for me was through organizations, groups, mentors, attending uh, field days, pasture walks. Um, and it doesn't just have to be sheep. You can go to a cattle pasture walk and learn a lot. It might be about business plans that day. It might be about a fence post that day. It might be about a watering system and nothing about livestock, but you can learn a lot from that. This episode of Voices from the Field continues after ongoing podcast series, She's Raising Sheep. In it, Dr. Kathy Soder and NCAT Sustainable Agriculture Specialist, Linda Poole, talk about building a healthy, profitable flock of sheep no matter where you farm. Kathy, an animal scientist and ruminant nutritionist with decades of experience raising sheep in both Montana and Pennsylvania, runs 125 production Dorset ewes on 96 acres in Pennsylvania with her husband Ken and son Nathan. Be sure to come back next time for the second part of the conversation when Kathy and Linda turn their attention to parasites, predators, livestock, guard dogs, production equipment, and the mistakes Kathy has learned from along the way. Let's listen. Welcome, friends and listeners, to another installment of She's Raising Sheep, a periodic podcast of the ATRA program, which features women shepherds from across the U.S. and far beyond. I'm Linda Poole, a shepherd and NCAT grazing specialist from Montana. And today's guest, I'm so excited to welcome Kathy Soder from Petersburg, Pennsylvania. Kathy raises a fantastic flock of production dorsets along with her husband, Ken, and son, Nathan. They use an impressive suite of production practices on the cutting edge of the science and the art of raising really great sheep. Kathy's assembled an excellent video presentation that is very closely tied to what we're going to be talking about in today's uh, podcast. So please be sure to check out that presentation. We'll have the slides linked in the show notes of this podcast. And maybe in the future, we'll be able to talk Kathy into doing an actual webinar with us, because I think what you're going to find listening to this podcast is that there is so much information that we can learn from Kathy Soder. So for now, I'll bet you're really eager to hear from Kathy herself about how she's built such a beautiful flock and a successful business. So welcome, Kathy, to She's Raising Sheep. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I would love to kick this off by you just kind of setting the stage about how you ended up raising sheep in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I grew up in central Pennsylvania in a rural community, not on, directly on a farm. My grandparents had farms, but was always interested in animals and ended up doing an animal science degree and then moving to Montana to do some graduate work in, in animal science. And I guess, you know, to back up a little bit, the funny thing is, is I do have sheep in my blood. I found out a few years ago there we have a great article in my family from my great grandfather who was selling sheep in the state. And they were bidding on the sheep. And when the bidding slowed down, he pulled out a plug of tobacco and fed it to the sheep. And everybody loved it so much that they started bidding again. So he always fed tobacco to his sheep, from what I understand. So that's always been a story that I really like. But I really got interested in sheep when I went to Montana State University for a graduate program in animal science. I lived on the university farm, did research with the university ranch uh, flock, the range flock, and they were really cutting edge with a lot of their technologies. They were one of the first flocks in, in the development of the National Sheep Improvement Program, which is the, the program that does the expected breeding values, and they just used a lot of technology that I learned, and when I uh, finished my degree there and worked for the wool laboratory there for two years, I had to decide kind of another career path. So we moved back to Pennsylvania and I went to graduate school again for my PhD in animal science uh, in, in dairy nutrition, but still in ruminant nutrition. And at the same time, we decided to start a flock. We had to decide on what type of sheep to raise because we really loved those Western range breeds, but decided that they probably weren't the best fit for the humid East climate. Uh, their their feet and their, and their fleeces weren't adapted. And we really started looking at the ethnic markets in the East and we needed a breed that would lay them out of season. So that's what drew us to the Dorset. And we found a small flock, started, started on a 17 acre farm, got boxed in there, moved to our current 96 acre farm. And that's where we are today. 
Wow, that's that's quite a quite a journey from Pennsylvania to Montana and and back to Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, one of the things that intrigues me about your story, uh, Kathy, is how you how you really think about matching the sheep to the particular place where you are raising sheep. You, the Montana State University flock is Rambouillet, Targhee, a little Columbia, mm-hmm. you know, Western white fine wool sheep, and now you've gone to Dorsets. So can you talk a little bit about how you choose a breed to match the place that you're in and the markets that you want to reach? How do you go about that? I think the first question, when people come to my farm and they're looking at sheep, because, for example, hair sheep are quite popular now. Mm -hmm. And somebody will say, well, why should I buy your sheep over hair sheep? And I first thing I will ask them is, what is your market? You know, some markets prefer wool sheep if you're doing ethnic markets and you you're hitting the smaller frame smaller uh, sized animals they're going to want a little woolly butterball mm-hmm. and the hair sheep don't fare as well in general in those markets if you're selling cuts of meat you raise what you want to raise because you're selling a cut of meat if you're happy with the product and your customer's happy with the product you know, so be it. You have to be happy with what's in, what you see in the field. If you don't like the looks of your sheep, you don't like how they behave, if they're too flighty, not flighty enough, if you're doing different things, you have to pick them by temperament and by productivity. And, you know, you take a lot in the factor, not just say, well, I want to raise this breed of sheep and try to force fit it into a system. Mm-hmm. And even within breeds, sometimes there's more variation within breeds than there is across breeds. Mm-hmm. And the dorsets are a great example because there's more of the show type, larger frame dorsets, whereas we have the smaller, more traditional style dorsets that don't require as many inputs and they're a smaller frame, but it, they meet our markets a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I have you know, another disclosure to our listeners is I have had some rams that had some K-Bar-K, which is the name of Kathy's farm and ranch that has had some of her genetics in them. And when I take those lambs to my lamb buyer up here on the high line in Montana, he's like, so what ram did those come from? And I said, well, why are you asking? He said, because that type of lamb, I can sell whether that lamb whether that lamb weighs 60 pounds or whether that lamb weighs 120 pounds. I can sell that lamb because the way that they finish is amazing and the carcass is is beautiful. You know, it's a, it's a sweet thing how these dorsets work if what your main product is is meat. Yeah, my <laughs> my buyer is like, "Could you get some more of those rams, please?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they're you know they're just they're 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 docile breed. They're good mothers. They're good milkers. They lay them out of season. Those were the things we were looking for, um, and they do well in our forage based system because we don't feed a lot of grain. We do feed some grain when needed, but we don't feed a lot of grain. And I want them. I don't. I want them to work for the us and not us work for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, many directions I could go, but where I think I'd like to go is in your presentation, you said that you started in 2003 with 14 Dorset ewes. You borrowed a Dorset ram and that, you know, now you're to the point of making a lot of your profit through selling breeding stock and doing AI and bringing in genetics, maybe from Australia or or England, can you talk with us a little bit about the process of starting with a bunch, you know, a little bunch of not very completely matched ewes and now to what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. When we bought that flock, there were some of both types, some of the framier show type dorsets and some of the smaller, more production style dorsets. And we didn't really know about the different types of dorsets at that time. And we just started noticing some differences. Those old style dorsets were just going to town. They would just pop lambs out, get them up, get going. And those large frame hues did too. But what we really noticed with them is those larger frame humes weren't weaning any more pounds of lamb than those smaller frame ewes. Mm-hmm. What's happening in those ewes is they're eating more. Mm-hmm. So that really got us to look. And so we started with a mismatch. And you can start with a mismatch of ewes. But one thing I would say is do not go to the auction yard and buy up any type of sheep. The diseases come for free. 
You know, the only thing I send to the auction yard is problems. If you yeah. buy them, it's your problem. And so, you know, the diseases come for free. So start with a good foundation. You don't have to start with the best of everything, but sometimes you can start with some some mature use, older use if you can find them. You know, I know, Linda, like in your part of the country, sometimes there's some good five, six-year-old use yeah. that aren't spent, but, you know, they're not as productive as they were, but they can make a great base for somebody to start with if, if some of your range guys are starting to, to sell mm-hmm. some of them. And that's what we had considered doing is bringing in some of those those long in the tooth hues that, that were had spent their time there, but would give us some good genetics. The other thing we noticed is when we brought sheep in, our, our flock has been closed to live animals since 2005. So everything mm-hmm. that's come in has been in the, in the, the semen tank. So we, we closed mm-hmm. it by security reasons was a big part of it. But the other thing we noticed is whenever we would bring anything in, it was usually rams, but occasionally a couple of years before we closed the flock, that those animals always had a hard time adapting to our system. Now, they weren't always raised in the same type of system as they were. They were raised more of a a farm flock, eating more alfalfa and corn type of flock. And when we put them out on pasture, they just didn't do as well. Mm -hmm. But their lambs did great. And so there's a behavior and an adaptation of those animals, those that were raised in the system versus those that weren't. Mm -hmm. So you may not find, you know, you may find that the ones you buy are doing okay but look at what their offspring are doing, the ones that are raised in that system and start selecting from the ones that are doing well. I don't care if they have a name. I don't care if they're the kid's favorite. I I mean, you can keep them if you want to. Don't keep offspring out of them if they're not producing at the level of everybody else. Start being very selective. Select those ones that have twins. Select the the offspring out of the ewes that lamb early in the first cycle, not the ones that lamb in the second or third cycle and are very late in the season. You start selecting the best and start keeping those back. And eventually you'll get into a very good flock. And the one thing I would say too is is don't buy like I said again don't go to the auction yard and and spend a little bit of money on your door on your ram I won't say dorset whatever ram you have, on your ram because your youth is a small percentage of your genetics of your flock your ram if you use one ram is fifty percent of the genetics of your next generation mm-hmm. so he'll make a huge imprint on your offspring so make sure you get something that that's that's half decent. Yeah. So tell us what constitutes a good ram for you and how you find those rams. And and there might be a little bit of a of a side note to this too, Kathy, is you're in a mature stage of developing your flock. And you've, you know, you've already exhausted a lot of the good genetics who are around you. You are the source of the good genetics. And so what you need to do might be a little different than some of our, what our listeners need to do. So maybe you can touch on what you do. And then if somebody was, you know, in the first five years of raising sheep, what they might look at for choosing a ram that's really going to advance your success. Yeah. The old joke is as a ram, you know, a good ram is one that has two testicles and four legs, but there's more to it than that. <laughs> and, uh, um, the thing to do is is to make connections. And, you know, with with if you have people in your region or not in your region, maybe within your breed, wherever you need to make those connections, maybe it's the university. If they have a a sheep specialist or a sheep program to get get to know the breeders and get to know the breeders that have the same types of goals that you have that feed similarly that you do that have the same biosecurity requirements that you do that just have the same goals that you do and that's where you really want to look for genetics i mean you're not going to always find rams or or you're not going to always want to or be able to pay for rams that have all this data behind them and i get that and we sell some rams that aren't as high in numbers as other ones but we'll sell them a little bit lower to get people started to get a commercial producer into it and you know finding those production type rams used to be really hard and and a lot of breeds because all you saw was the show flyers and those are the ones that were out there advertising and when we started we had a hard time locating other like-minded people we started getting on some listservs i started it's kind of dead now because it's kind of run its course but we started a listserv production dorsets at one point a friend and i did and so we connected a lot of people that way you know you can contact folks like other folks doing it, contact me, even if, you know, if, if I don't have what you have, I will try to help you find what you need. 
Wow, that's great. Uh, you know, it does, not just within the breed, but if there's somebody else, you know, because we make a lot of connections. And, and so, you know, you start that way. You start making those connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a big part of what you're talking about when you're saying doesn't don't have the numbers are expected breeding values. And that might be a new term for some of our listeners. So can you talk about lamb plan and the National Sheep Improvement Program and EBVs, what, what they can do? And what they can't do, you know, that you also, I mean, I've heard it said, and I believe this too, EBVs are part of the answer and you cannot use the numbers alone and have success. So what's your take on that? Well, I always heard pretty sheep don't have EBVs and ugly sheep have EBVs. You know, there was always (laughs) because they select them straight on numbers. You can't do that. (laughs) You can't do that. Yeah, EBVs are expected breeding values or folks who have other species may know a similar term of expected progeny differences used sometimes in in the cattle industry and swine. Mm -hmm. And what it does, it's a complicated system that takes in a nutshell, the data of that animal and the data of all its relatives in my flock and any other flock that's that's relate or that's enrolled in the program. And it generates this expected breeding value saying, will this animal produce higher than the average or lower than the average? And that average will depend. Average could just be my flock if all I have is numbers within my flock, but it could be across the breed as far as whoever enrolls their flock in those values. And that was one thing that Montana State was really, really at the forefront of and where I really learned to be a data nerd. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to raise sheep without numbers now. And so I, I was indoctrinated in that in my program there with, with my advisors at, at MSU. And I really learned to trust the numbers. Um, it takes a while. And, you know, you can look at things like birth weight, weaning weight, post weaning weight. They'll do eye muscle depth. They'll do wool traits, which I don't do because of them being dorsets. Fecal egg counts. You know, there's a whole uh, uh, reproductive traits, number lamb. There's a whole host of, of traits out there. There's dairy traits as well for, for dairy sheep. And you can take, if I get an animal that is a plus 5.8 on, let's say, post weaning weight, that means that that animal will have a, let me think how this works now, have a higher weaning weight that might, that will average half of that. So it'd be like two and a half kilo, that's in kilos for them, but it would be still be about five pounds mm-hmm. for us because that ram only gives 50 percent of the genetics to that animal so if i'm increasing my weaning weights by two three four five pounds doing that and i've seen that trend over time we have graphs and nsip has graphs that show how characteristics and how traits have increased over time because of that mm-hmm. so we really trust those numbers to kind of sort out the top of the animals but then after i do that i need to go to the barn because the nsip doesn't tell us all it doesn't tell me how that you mothered that lamb. It doesn't tell me how vigorous that lamb was. It tells me nothing about how structurally sound that animal is. And it doesn't tell me things if you're interested in face wool, leg wool, black spots, odd wool, things like that. It doesn't tell me out of season lambing ability for the dorsets because it only records one lambing a year. I can enter them, but I have to kind of keep track of that myself. And it tells me nothing about the temperament of the animal. So I have had some very high ranking animals that have been real terrors and they left because I wasn't going to breed bad temperaments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So I think one thing that would be helpful, Kathy, is to set the stage of kind of your shepherding year. You mentioned out of season breeding and you have the AI in there. There's a lot of things that are that are maybe going to be new or interesting to people. So can you kind of run us through the year from breeding through, you know, what do you do in winterings? You know, how do you winter? When are you lambing? Are you on accelerated lambing mm-hmm. or not? Weaning, when are you doing that? And okay. at what weight? And what are you selling your lambs at? So just, you know, Paint us the business end of the shepherding year of what you're doing. Okay. We lamb twice a year. We lamb in March and we lamb in late October, November. Um, and part of the reason for doing that is Ken and I both have full-time off-farm jobs with the flock. We've got 125 ewes and full-time jobs. So the lambing needs to be when we're available. Mm-hmm. My daytime job gets very busy about this time of year when all the grass starts growing. So I need to be done with lambing and I want them out on pasture once once our grass 
starts growing. So we land March and October. So we're backing up five months and breeding at that time. And uh, usually what, around October and then breeding in, in September, October. And then again, uh, starting about Memorial Day or so for the fall lambs. And so the ewes, the, let's go through the March lambing ewes. They lamb in the barn. We have, our farm is a, is a former dairy farm. So it has a big pole barn in it that was free stalls and feed troughs and parlor and all that. And we, we mm-hmm. gutted it out and have a big barn that we can lamb in. And otherwise, I would not lamb in March. I would not lamb till later because uh, we wouldn't have the cover. We don't pasture lamb because, one, the time of year is bad because we're busy and we're out of there. And our pastures are not conducive to it. We have many, many hills on our farm. In fact, somebody mm-hmm. told us one time, we call our one field the flat field. And somebody said, when you call your one field the flat field, it tells you how hilly the rest of your farm is. And I said, <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so we do not pasture lamb. One, because it's hilly, because when we did pasture lamb, we would find that the ewe would drop the first lamb, and sometimes it would roll down the hill a little bit away from the ewe, and oh, she'd drop a second lamb, and they couldn't, they didn't get back together. Oh, no. It and is, there's not enough is. cover in our pastures yet. There's not enough cover. So it just didn't work. And then with our work schedules, it got really old going out at four in the morning with a headlamp to get tags and, and weights on those lambs, because if I waited till the afternoon and they were born the night before, I couldn't catch the little buggers. Yeah. They were just too fast. So we went back to barn lambing in March. We also have a lot of eagles and, and black-headed buzzards here now, or they've altered buzzards, that uh, have picked up calves and hit hurt calves even. So and another lamb so we we keep them in the barn so they will lamb in march and then about this time of year we just went out this past week we start grazing and they will graze until around memorial day so i need to wean these lambs by 100 days of age because i have intact ram lambs mm-hmm. and the dorset is an early maturing breed and if i don't i'll have some surprise lambs later this fall Mm-hmm. So I get them out of there by then. So we lamb, plus them being on a forage diet, their room is developed a little bit slower. So we keep them on their mamas a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. The fall lambing group's a little bit different. They're lambing in late October, November. And the weather, you know, the weather could be beautiful and the weather could be nasty. So we just do that in the barn again for the same reason. The ewes are off pasture, even though my other ewes are out that aren't lambing at that time. And they will be in over the winter. Those lambs do get more creep feed they get creep feed and and which is a, a grain where the the lambs can get through a gate to get to it and the ewes can't so they grow a little bit faster they're on some good alfalfa hay and some feed and so we'll wean them about 60 70 days because it just gets them out of the barn before the other group needs to come in for lambing mm-hmm. and uh so that's our our lambing cycle for the year uh, people have asked me if we're on the accelerated program the cornell star system some some folks have heard of which is lambing five times in three years and mm-hmm. and i say no there's a number of reasons we don't i say they're on the soda system they lamb when i want to lamb so that we can have our <laughs> time out or, or time off the farm or whatever we need and but, so we've settled on those two mm-hmm. yeah so do you have two separate groups then one that's lambing in one time and one that's lambing at the other or you're actually lambing these used twice in one year some of them will lamb twice in one year the way it works is everything that lambs in march will get exposed again for fall mm-hmm. now if they lamb in the fall they kind of hit a fall cycle because there's not a that third they, you would need that third breeding in there for the year to catch them again because they're they would be lambing at the same time as i'm breeding in the fall so they don't have that opportunity so th- I have some ewes that hit that fall cycle and just lamb every fall. And if I could get the whole flock to do that, I would love that. It's a great time of year to lamb. It's a good market. Yeah. You know, it, there aren't that many lambs out there. You're not hitting that glut of the market when you hit beginning of the year with, with some holidays, ethnic holidays and some other activities going on. So some of my ewes are, are accelerating where they're lambing twice in a year. Some of them are hitting that fall. But any you that misses two breedings or any you that has a single twice, Mm-hmm. in a row leaves yeah makes sense leaves. so those lambs you're weaning them at 60 days with one bunch 100 days with the others are you keeping those and feeding them out or are you marketing at that point what what happens to the lambs at that point after weaning i can submit my data to nsip and then i make an initial cut on what would make good breeding stock and what doesn't so the breeding stock will raise out a little bit at least the rams the ewe lambs i'll start selling after weaning the rest of them, we we do not raise them out. 
you know, we're land limited a little bit. We have 96 acres, but we have about 540, 45 acres of pasture. There's some cropland. Of course, there's the house. There's some woods. And so we do not feed out lambs. Uh, I sell them as feeder lambs. And they've gone out to a number of people. I've got a list of people that want feeder lambs. So that works well for us because it's just one less thing for me to manage with full-time jobs. If I didn't have a full-time job, that would probably change what I would do with marketing and a lot of things. You know, and that's the decisions we had to make because people will say, well, why don't you market your wool here? Why don't you sell ethnic lambs? And we're, we're 20 miles from Penn State University, a very culturally diverse population. We could sell, in fact, some people come over to our farm sometimes, lots of funny stories there, looking for lambs for different ethnic holidays. We could sell into there, but the time that it would take, anytime you add another enterprise, it's almost in our 20 to 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And so we have decided to, to focus on the breeding stock. And then kind of market what we can elsewhere. The feeder lambs is a good market outlet for us. The wool, sometimes we've made some blankets. Of course, right now, I don't know what we're going to do with it because there is not much of a wool market at all. And our only group that picked up mid-stage just shut down. So, you know, there is no pickup for wool right now. So I'm not sure what we're going to do, but we found some local mills. So we may look at, at selling to some local processing mills. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding out there's more of them around than I thought. And not just the big ones, but some little ones that are tucked away in in little valleys. Yeah, well, we are we are very fortunate at NCAT right now to have received a, a one of the Climate Smart Commodity Grants from uh, NRCS, and so mm-hmm. we've got a a huge project, a thirty million dollar five year project to work on climate beneficial fiber. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was just on a phone call with one of our partners from New York and thinking as part of this work that we'll be doing, you know, a a big part of the wool project will be in the Northern Great Plains with our fine wool sheep. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're really trying to come up with something that is regenerative, that that helps communities and and helps climate and creates a sustainable, profitable program. You know, a bit, most of us who raise sheep make our money off meat. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not the fiber. And yet what we know is the most sustainable fiber on the face of the earth is wool. Right. And so, and so, you know, thinking about products and, and processing and value chains for what I, what I would call meat quality sheep. So it's a down wool Dorset type uh, wool is going to be part of what we're doing, and and uh, you know fingers are crossed that we can that we can come up with a way to do that because the Dorset wool, you know, I'm a hand spinner too, and I love it. You know, I just I, it's bouncy, it's got a lot of crimp, it's you know for or it's got a lot of life to it for the amount of crimp that it has. Uh, it doesn't felt which makes it really good for some products. So I'm hoping that we'll be that we'll be uh, working along with the fiber shed group out of California and, and coming up with some new market streams for some of this type of wool. I think there's there's some efforts in the east as well or some groups forming up trying to get some some you know different marketing opportunities especially for what we consider these lower quality wools because they you know they're not worth as much as the fine wools are in the west but there's still a need for them and a certainly a use for them. I have a, a comforter made out of our wool that we had done years ago. I can't keep it on my bed it's too warm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I had uh, some of the sheep that had your blood in it, and then I had some that had Clun Forest in them, so uh, another meat breed. And the best pillows ever, those pillows are 10 years old, Mm -hmm. and they're just still completely springy, and they just, they stay clean. You put them out in the sun and the fresh air, and you know, there's there's a lot of things that we can do with with the wool end of this business, too, but... Mm -hmm. In your profitability, in you know, kind of in your business model, most of the money is coming from from breeding stock, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, I would guess that that is that's not the most likely market for a beginning shepherd to to try to jump into. You mm-hmm. know that developing this good quality of of sheep over time. And then, you know, maybe someday you'll have the type of flock that might be appropriate for breeding. So just kind of a, a word of, uh, we can learn a lot from Kathy, but it's not one thing to learn is that we can't jump in 
pretending like we've already been doing this for 20 or 30 years, you know? And, right. And, and you know, the other thing about selling breeding stock is it is a huge time commitment because I, especially with rams, I'm piecemealing rams out one or two at a time. And the time I spend with each buyer answering questions and, and the time I spend with, I'll use a term here, tire kickers, you know, they want a really cheap ram, but they want our genetics. I mean, but they, they're time wasters, but yeah. you know, but even with the the valid buyers, there's just a lot of time in putting together the data, putting together the pictures, putting together the information, putting it out there, answering questions, arranging to meet buyers, arranging transport. There's just a lot out there. It would be a lot easier to load them up and take them to the auction or take them. You, we have New Holland auction two and a half hours away than one of the biggest ethnic you know sheep auctions in the in the country and we have taken sheep down there but you know we we've chosen to go other routes the atro website has been connecting sustainable agriculture students and farmers around the country for decades our free internship hub makes it easy to find interns or farmers looking to hire interns if you're looking for some practical experience on a working farm to bolster your studies or you want to pass on the wisdom of your experience in exchange for some willing elbow grease, stop by at atra.incat.org. Yeah, and that's a lot like me with uh, with my wool because mine are fine wool sheep, merino crosses. And uh, I can make a lot more if I'm if I'm dealing with hand spinners one at a time. I mean, like... Uh, 20 times more I can I can make if I if I'm really focusing on the fiber. But if you look at the return on investment for the amount of time that I spend to do that, you know, that's always an important piece of this, too. And maybe that's where we could go with this now, Kathy, is kind of like, how did you develop the business plan and your philosophy? And, you know, how do you pull that all together, especially especially thinking of people who are just getting started. Are there are there places to go to learn how to do this? Uh, you know, I went to ranching for profit and found that right. hugely helpful. Of course, Petra has lots of good information on on business planning and, and grazing planning and marketing and things like that. But how about you? You know, how did you come up with the philosophy and the business model that you're running on? Uh-huh. Well, part of it, I think, was just my academic background, and that's how I got into, you know, into sheep first. I, before just having sheep and then having to get into that, I think, you know, I was in that mode to start with. But, you know, I think the question to ask yourself is, why do you want sheep, and what do you want to do with them? Mm-hmm. And then finding that animal that will fit it. And, you know, as far as resources, there's a lot of things you can do. You know, I I talk about connections and I can't say enough about connections. Finding a mentor. There are, you know, there are some mentoring programs, even if they're not official. You know, I answer a lot of questions for people. The problem we have with a lot of these mentoring is is that can be a, a time suck for those of us doing it. You know, I have spent four hours in an evening with somebody out here instead of doing my laundry and instead of mowing the yard or, or, you know, there's, there's a trade-off there because we all only have so many hours per day, but the business plan for me was through organizations, groups, mentors, attending uh, field days, pasture walks. Um, And it doesn't just have to be sheep. You can go to a cattle pasture walk and learn a lot. It might be about business plans that day. It might be about a fence post that day. It might be about a watering system and nothing about livestock, but you can learn a lot from that. There's a lot of good groups, and a lot of them are are, our university folks and some others who are putting out great webinars after puts out stuff, you know, and everybody, a lot of groups are putting, there's some state and regional groups that do it too. We have, you know, like the Pennsylvania, while they're PASA Sustainable Farming now, uh, or sustainable agriculture, they, they've changed their their name, but you know they do a lot with with small ruminants. And even if it's not in your region, if you're you're in you know Highline of Montana, you can learn something from a webinar from Georgia. You know it might not be the same climate, but some of the some of the principles are the same. Yeah, I'm just you know uh, I am so grateful that we have gotten to the place where there are so many webinars that are available. Um, Food Animal Concerns Trust does a lot on small ruminants and, you know, they're, they're farther, way farther east than I am, but you can always learn from, from that. And I'm grateful, you know, it's a long ways to anywhere from where I'm at. And, and, and when we have sheep, we don't really have time to travel. And 
<laughs> so, you know, yeah. we, we need to be paying attention to what we're doing. So I, I am grateful to that. You know, one thing that we talked about as we were preparing um, this podcast, Kathy, was the idea of where not to learn. <laughs> and <laughs> can you can you kind of talk with our listeners about about where you might find bad information and how you might be able to tell the good from the bad? Right. Well, telling the good from the bad can be a challenge because you have a hard time figuring out who's the second year expert and who has done it for a while and often gets shut down. I, the social media is just terrible. I have found very little. I mean, you find occasionally you find a group that's good, but then it tends to get hijacked by by the keyboard warriors that know it all. And, you know, it's their way or the highway. I've raised this for three years and then this is the way I did it and it works okay, it might work for you, or it might have been a fluke, or it might have been, you know, something else that you're attributing it to. But social media, I would say, be very, very wary of in general. I, I'm i on a lot, I lurk on a lot of pages. I stay off of it, because I just, it you get sucked in. And, and then somebody will say, well, who are you to answer? And those of us say, nobody, we're nobody, we'll, we'll shut up, you know, go ahead. But I find a lot of our organizations. Um, NRCS has some really good, we have good grazing specialists. And I said about some of the universities, University of Maryland has a ton of information out. Susan Shanian, who was an MSU grad as well. She's amazing. Uh, Yes. She's retired now, but she, um, yes. uh, And uh, she has a a bunch of information. So there's some different, you know, Iowa with Dan Morical, there were a bunch of them that put out a lot of different information. And some of it applies to you. you know, some of the Midwestern models may not apply to the East or, or vice versa, but you can still pull out some of the information that's really good. And I'm not just pushing it because it's university, because I know they can get Ivory Tower too. I've been there, I've done that. And, but there is, especially in small ruminants, um, there are very few sheep extension specialists anymore and it seems like the ones that are out there really want to help you know they're there and a lot of them are sheep producers mm-hmm. and uh and yours in there in montana you know i Where went to school with him so yeah. <laughs> yeah i went to school with brent and so you know they, they really want to help and they're putting out good information and i think you know that's a good place to start but then you got to get that local information and that's where you go to your local groups, whether it's your state sheep association, if it's active, some are more active than others. Uh, if it's maybe an NRCS grazing person, if it's going to somebody who's at extension and says, hey, I need to find some sheep producers to bounce questions off of who's in the state, who can I talk to? Right. What are the activities? What are the pasture walks? What are the conferences, field days, whatever I need to go to, to, to start? And you need to get out. You know, I know it's hard to get out, but we need to get out. We need mm-hmm. to interact. Kathy, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that you have a closed flock and in your presentation slides, there's a story in there about the foot rot. And, you know, you've warned us not to be bringing home buying diseases at the at the um, auction yard. Can you talk to us a little bit about biosecurity, vaccines, how you work with your animal health and your veterinarian to have a, a good system? Sure. We decided to close the flock in 2005 because, well, one was that foot rot issue, and it was hard to find sheep in this region that didn't have an issue like foot rot or sore mouth, because we don't have sore mouth either, or uh, ringworm sometimes, you know, you'll get some of that. And we just when we decided to really push the breeding stock, we wanted to do it with a high health standard. So we we closed the flock because we were going to start using uh, imported semen. So we really didn't need to bring rams in. And so, you know, we, we eradicated that foot rot on the old farm before we ever moved over here and haven't had a problem since. Even with scald, uh, it went away when the, when we got rid of the foot rot. And so it's really helped us keep a high health standard. And anybody that comes onto the farm is asked to wear clean clothes, you know, clothes that haven't been out in the barn. Don't bring your dogs along, or if you do, keep them in the truck. Uh, we, you know, we don't need that. And we will put put plastic boots on you, um, mm-hmm. disposable booties on you, if you're going to the barn to to look at the animals or to handle them. And I have asked people to leave the farm because they come in with their farm boots still covered in manure. 
Mm-hmm. And I told them we're not going into my farm that way. So, you know, we've just decided that we didn't need to have anything like that. And so we just did it. And we can we can advertise our flock as closed because we don't bring live animals in. You know, you can get into other issues, too, like we mentioned uh, with buying animals at the auction yard, you know, even if those animals didn't have an issue coming in, there's all kinds of health issues in the woodwork and in the floors and in the other animals there. And you never know what you're going to bring home. As far as vaccinations, the only vaccine that we use is, is the CD&T, which is the enterotoxemia and tetanus shots. Um, we give it to the ewes a few weeks before lambing and then again at the lambs about four weeks of age and then at, at weaning time. Uh, we don't use anything else. Uh, one reason we did close our flock too was was you can get into abortion storms with different diseases. You know, bringing a ram in with with sexually transmitted diseases, and so we don't have that issue. We don't want those issues, and we haven't had to deal with them. Now, there's a a new along the lines of animal health and vaccinations, and and trying to figure out when you have a, a problem with an animal the new directive that's coming out where all of our antibiotics are going to have to be purchased through a vet is going to be hard for a lot of people because they don't have a vet client relationship or they don't even have a veterinarian. And that's going to be a big challenge. Um, But if you do not have a relationship, but you have a local vet, it is worth your while to make that relationship. And that, yes, you might have to spend money to have that vet come to your farm once or twice because they need to get to know your flock and establish that relationship. But a lot of times, you can learn something from them. You might have a prolapsed uterus you've never dealt with before. And I don't know how to do it. And the vet shows you how to do it. Next, trip, next time you know how to do it if you ever have it again. My vet knows why well, I've called her, I think, twice to help pull a lamb. And she knows it's really bad if I'm calling her to help pull a lamb. But I was just so worn out and her little hands uh, helped me and, and we got them out. But, you know, I have that relationship. I'm fortunate to have a local vet who's really good and, and I can work with. But we're going to all have to have that relationship somehow, somewhere, because otherwise you're not going to even be able to get that bottle of penicillin or a bottle of anything uh, to, to help treat our animals. So not only that, but we have to make sure we're keeping our animals healthy. So feeding them well and managing them well and, and listening to that gut. And, and if you see an animal starting to get sick, because sheep are so good at hiding their illnesses that by the time we really see them ill, they're really sick. They're probably mm-hmm. on their last leg. So we really need to be vigilant and see if you just see that you with just her head down in the corner, just a little bit or a little bit off, or she's a little bit slow, grab her, take her temperature, you know, take, take a look at her, look at her gum, just see what's happening. Is her rumen full? Is she chewing cud? What's going on? Is she have mastitis? You know, what might be going on with her? Catch it early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, another related thing is our ability to manage the health of our animals through managing nutrition food as medicine. So uh, what about your mineral? Do you have a mineral program that that you have with your sheep, Kathy, and um, any other supplements? You said that you feed a little bit of grain. So can you tell us about that? Um, as far as mineral, we use a custom mineral mix. I work, even though I'm an animal scientist, mineral nutrition is a whole different animal. I work with another nutritionist to develop a mineral program and I mix it here on the farm. I'll get a, a base mix from them and then mix it with lime and and uh, salt and some some common ingredients and we've actually worked really well for us because I find that a lot of our mineral mixes in the east are more for a farm flock situation and not a pasture and we found some deficiencies uh, selenium for example wasn't even high enough in the in the commercial mixes and we actually had to boost ours a little bit up to the level that we could otherwise I was starting to give shots and I'd much rather let them eat it in their mineral and have to give uh, selenium shots to, to lambs because we did have a little bit of white muscle disease because of selenium deficiency. And so we, we also could deliver some ionophore or some um, coccidia stats in it to help uh, prevent coccidia. So I can mix it. I can mix it, uh, a mix from my ewes and we base it on forage tests. Mm-hmm. So we do forage tests of our pastures, of our hay, and then this person mixes or develops the ration for me. And so I'll have a different mix for my rams, for ewes that are pregnant, for ewes that are lactating, dry ewes, lamb. You know, there's all kinds of different ones if they're getting grain or not. They give me a whole bunch of different mixes, but then I have a little concrete mixer here and I just mix it in there. Yeah, huh? I use the same program, probably <laughs> the same person. And I I think that, you know, there's so many people that I talk to that have small flocks or small herds. I mean, it's the Mm -hmm. same case with people who are feeding sheep. 
feeding cattle, feeding horses even. And they're just like, well, I'm not going to get this hay tested um, because at least here in Montana, we have a lot of winter and it's a rare person who doesn't have to feed a significant amount of hay up here. And and they're like, well, I don't really think it's that important to get my my hay tested. And, you know, talk about return on investment. When I went to a truly balanced ration, so many of the problems I had with my sheep went away lambs that were too big because I was trying to just go, well, I'm not really sure about this. So I'm going to feed just a little more alfalfa than I think they really need. It's like bad idea, you know, bad idea in two ways. It's, it's money that I could have saved. And all of a sudden lambs are too big. (laughs) Birth rates are too high. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just like, boy, talk about good money was to, Mm. was to learn to test the forages, to test the water, Mm-hmm. Um, and to then have a really good mineral mix. You know, one one thing that I see some other folks doing and, and they find works well for them are the ideas of the mineral buffets where there's separate minerals that are offered. And do you have any any input on the value of a of a good mineral mix, you know, like you work versus this mineral buffet idea? the the idea that they can mix their own minerals through you know this cafeteria style buffet mineral i get this a lot at work as well so my answer is yes they can learn but it might take generations Mm. because and not all animals will learn it's natural selection at work because some of the animals will learn some of them will under consume some will over consume and if you have that, you're going to have some that are unthrifty, some that are going to follow the system. Some might get toxic doses of something and, and kill themselves. Are you willing to do that? Yeah, they're 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 going to regulate. They're going to take. There's some minerals they'll like. They're going to like the salt. They're going to like a couple of different types of minerals. But there's others they may not like, but they need. And if they don't consume those, you know, how can we be sure they're actually consuming proper amounts? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think, you know, having a mix like you or I do, where we can adjust it. And if there's an issue, we can pull some blood or pull some liver samples or pull a forage test and, and see where the deficiencies lie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we made some changes in our mineral. I noticed my lambs just weren't as thrifty. They just didn't look as good. And the ewes just weren't as good the last few years. We had, we had changed from one to another mix. And this mix was was deficient in some things, obviously. And so we added some other mineral back in. And the lambs this year just look spectacular compared to, to the last couple of years. It's just been, like you said, you just see that. Oh, I can I can call it bloom. It's just bloomy. Yep. They just look bloomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With your, with your specialty in nutrition, I wonder, there's probably questions I should have asked you about, about how to feed sheep that I didn't. So can you just kind of, you know, what, what should I have asked you? (laughs) Well, that's, yeah, that's gonna, gonna vary by, you know, I think the minerals important and the forage testing is important. You know, I think, I think that's just critical because, you know, people say, well, I'm feeding horse quality hay or dairy quality hay. Well, what is that? What is dairy quality hay? Expensive stuff. (laughs) That may or may not be good if you don't have it tested. Well, and, and maybe too hot, you know, I used to, I used to to raise horses and and getting really good bones in, in the legs of those foals was, was a lot about not buying dairy quality, you know, high Mm -hmm. alfalfa, you know, horses are, horses are Mm -hmm. built to eat grass, not legumes, straight, almost straight legumes. So, you know, that might be really of interest to our listeners is to think about, about the, what does a sheep need? You know, this is, this is a interesting question. How much change is there over, uh, over a yearly cycle in how you are feeding? Um, are you letting them mostly get what they need out of the pastures or are you, you know, mm-hmm. really changing their feed and their mineral over the course of a gestation or a life cycle, a breeding cycle? During the grazing season, our sheep, lambs, ewes, rams, everybody are only on grass mm-hmm. or on, on the pasture. And it's a, a grass-based pasture. It's got some clovers and some legumes in it, but it's it's primarily a grass-based pasture. If I fed them some supplemental feed, would they grow faster? Yes, but that's just a choice we have made to be a forage-based system. 
you know, lambs will get grain in the wintertime. They'll get that creep feed, that, that grain that they can get into just to help them grow a little bit. And I can wean them a little bit earlier. We, during gestation, if, if for these March lambing groups, we will feed first part of lactation, or sorry, gestation when they come in from pasture, which can be anywhere from uh, Thanksgiving through end of January, usually depending on when we get snow. And the snow we get gets that really hard crust or gets ice on it. And we had an ice storm last year. We had one of those flash freezes and I had to pull them off pasture about four weeks early um, because they just couldn't get through that. It was, it was, that was something else. Hmm. But they, when they come in, they're going to get what we call our first cut hay, our first cut grass hay, because it's a lower quality hay. We've tested it. It's a lower quality hay, but their maintenance requirements aren't that high. And then as they get into the last three to four weeks of pregnancy, we're getting them more of a mixed hay, mixed legumes and grasses. I don't give any grain unless they would have really, really poor quality hay, which has happened in years. You know, you can buy whatever quality hay you want. You have to feed what you make. So you got to sometimes <laughs> make adjustments. Yeah. And so if we have decent mixed hay, again, tested, I will get that the last three to four weeks of pregnancy. And when they lamb, if I have used to have triplets, I'll start feeding them some grain. They're getting a corn, soybean, roasted bean mix. Not a lot, usually a pound or maybe a pound and a quarter. I'll work them up to that. Singles and twins just get more, if I have it, pretty straight off alpha hay or mixed hay if I don't have it. And I don't grain feed those ewes at all that have singles or twins. I do offer creep feed to the lambs starting at about two weeks of age until they go out, but spring was a little early. So they, they didn't even really start eating it this year. They were nibbling on it, but didn't really start eating it. And they're out on pasture now with no grain. So the creep feed is a grain creep feed. It's not, it's not a hay. It's a texturized grain feed. Yes. It has Uh some molasses in it. So it's pretty palatable to them. And it's got some whole grains, some, some high moisture corn and some barley and wheat and some other, and some mineral in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and they have access to that from the time they're two weeks old until they leave the place or just. They go to pasture. They don't have it now. Okay. Yeah. And they make that transition. Yeah. Well, this is, this is really helpful. Thanks. (laughs) That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.